Okay, well, we're going to start off the message with a confession, okay? What a great way to start off a message than with a pastor confession, okay? Now, I realize some of my pastor confessions have been a, a snarky joke to start off, all right? But this is a serious one, so you, you can relax and not have to listen and go, where's the zinger from Nick? All right, this is a legitimate one. So our message today, basically, uh, chapter 4 of Micah, we basically looked at this idea of the king, hope in the kingdom to come. Now when we get to chapter 5, we're going to look at hope in the king that came in verses 1 through 2. The next week, we're going to look at the idea of hope in the king that will be coming in verses 3 through 15. But today, we're going to look at hope in the king that came in verses 1 through 2. And unique aspect we're going to look at this week and next week, hope in the king that came and hope in the king to come, is we're going to look at this idea of God's plan, his design and his timing. His design and his timing. So this past week, um, Thursday, I left here, Memphis, uh, early, and um, basically I drove to Dallas. The reason I drove to Dallas was that um, my parents have some older vehicles, and uh, they're in like their mid-90 vehicles, okay? And so uh, it's time to get rid of them. Uh, they've, they're good vehicles, but, you know, when you start getting up to 300,000, um, you know, you might, and you, you want to make some trips, or, you know, just want to make sure that you might get something a little bit more newer. Um, and so um, we went searching around, and we found uh, a 2016 Toyota Highlander here, and um, and so then I, my goal was to drive it to them uh, in Texas. Kind of been working. I kind of love buying cars, uh, although I don't really buy them very often. I love, I love the, the idea. I love researching cars. Um, my mom told me, she goes, you know what you ought to do? You ought to think about like researching cars that people want to buy. And like that could be, you know, that could be like a great side business. I was like, mom, they call those salesmen. Okay. They, they have those. No, no, no. I'm talking like someone wants a car and you go, find the car for them. I'm like, yeah, they have that already. Yeah, they, that's what they do. No, 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 that's not. <laughs> so it was a great time. We, we were miscommunicating. So I went down there Thursday, took the car back, and when I got there Thursday night, um, my parents had got me a present, and that present was a new riding lawnmower, okay, which um, I, you know, I was not expecting that at all. So the interesting thing is this, um, we rented a U-Haul trailer because it's there and you're not, you know, how am I going to get that back? I mean, I could drive it back. I, I don't think, I, I, I might get in trouble. That might be a little scary. So we rented a U-Haul trailer one way so I could bring this back. But when I left, my plan was to do, was to leave Saturday morning. So I went Thursday to Dallas, came back. Don't worry, this is all part of the story. It has a point. Came back yesterday, Saturday. Now, my goal was to leave at 6 in the morning because the earlier you leave, the less long the trip feels for some reason. I don't know, but, but you, if you, you just know it's like that. The earlier you can leave. So I, got, so I said, okay, Saturday, I'm going to leave at 5.30 in the morning. I'm going to get up at 5.30, and I'm going to be out the door by 6. Everything packed. All I needed to do was start the mower and load it onto the trailer that had I'd already got the trailer. It was already at my parents' house. And I get out there. Six in the morning, just need to just turn this thing on, load it on the trailer, and get going. And wouldn't you know, it wouldn't start. A brand new lawn, riding lawnmower, Toro, you know, a good mower, would not start. So 
oh, I started fiddling with it. It took like an hour, so now I kind of lost an hour. But remember, God is in control of design and time. So then I just kind of in my mind go, um, okay, Lord, you're sovereign. Maybe you're protecting me from some, there's some reason, so I'm not frustrated about this. And then it seems like it's not working, so I just said to my parents, like, well, I tell you what, just give me the receipt. This thing's not working. Maybe something's wrong. I'm just going to take it back. And so I, I kind of got in the trailer, went back to the original place. I was going to try to get their money back. We can recalibrate and, and look for something different. And, and so by that time and that process, and then I get there and, and trying to return this, and then the mechanic comes out, looks at the mower, kind of shows me, no, it's not broke. You just don't know what you're doing. You know, basically, the, the mower works now, and it's good. But now I'm delayed four hours. All right, so now I'm leaving, I plan to leave at 6, right, and now I'm leaving Texas at 4 hours later. And so finally everything's okay, so I go ahead and get some straps from where they bought, and I'm putting these straps on the mower so that it doesn't bounce around in the trailer, and I kind of have my idea of how I'm going to put these straps on, and then a gentleman comes up and is like, hey, uh, let me help you with that, I don't think the way you're putting the straps on, I, I got a better idea. And he just kind of butts into the situation and takes over. And But by the way, his idea for putting the straps was a horrible idea, okay? I tried it. didn't work going down the road, but that's superfluous to this point. So that morning, I had kind of said, you know, I'd love to share the gospel with somebody today, Lord, but that's probably going to be near impossible unless you, by your design and time, you decide to do that. So here I am, delayed four hours. Here's a guy, comes up and wants to help with the straps. And at that time, you know what I'm thinking? Man, four hours, I'm way behind. Like, man, it's going to be all day. I, I just don't have time. And this, this guy is probably with me about 15 minutes, putting these tie-downs on, and I absolutely pass over that opportunity. And it's not till about two hours later as I'm driving down the road, and I'm kind of thinking to myself, Man, I guess you just didn't provide that, Lord. Your, your design and your time were just not there. So that's the confession of a failure, but here's why I failed. Because God's design and time were not recognized. I, I wasn't putting hope in God's design and time. Guess where I was putting hope? In my design and timing. That's what I was doing. I was like, no, I'm supposed to leave at 6 in the morning so I can get back here at a decent time. Do you understand what I'm saying? So what's great about our text, now that was a pastoral failure. So if you're kind of like, man, I, I, I sometimes fail. Well, join the club. Join the club. But here's what I notice about today's text. The Lord never fails in his design and timing. His design and timing are always perfect or always right. When you look at the text today, we're going to be in Micah chapter 5 and verse 2. And Micah chapter 5, verse 1 and 2, if you were with us before, you noticed that in chapter 4, he basically is talking about hope in the kingdom to come. And now we're going to look at verse 1 through 2, hope in the king that did come. Now, just so you kind of understand what's happening, he basically, we're going through chapter 4, Hope in the kingdom to come. Verse 13, Israel's going to experience a kind of resurgence of power. It's leading up to Armageddon. We get that in verse 13. And now the prophet switches back to this idea of Israel. Things aren't going to go great for you. If you look in verse 1, he says, Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod, 
they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. So, by the way, this is what I love about the prophets. They are not tied to some kind of linear timeline like us. They can kind of go back and forth in the chronology of events. So, we're, we're back in chapter 4. We're ending verse 13, with, which I think is pointing towards the time of the tribulation. And now they kind of bump forward in verse, bump back in verse 1 to a time of when Babylon's going to come and take the southern kingdom of Judah. This is what's so frustrating about the prophets. They don't write according to my design and timing. But maybe that's why the Lord decides to do it all this way, just to keep teaching us lessons. So what happens in verse 1 is he reminds them of, hey, just so you know, verse 1 Babylon's coming for you. They're going to lay siege against you. Muster your troops. But in the end, their troops aren't going to do enough. They can hold off Babylon. If you know kind of the history, the last king of, of, of Judah, Zedekiah, holds them off for about three years. But in the end, they're, 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 all their maneuvers are not going to hold back the most powerful kingdom at that time, Babylon, especially as by God's design, Babylon was going to take them. But notice he says this at the end of verse 1. With a rod... They strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. And all that is according to God's timing and design. So if you're Israel and you're reading this and you hear, you see this, and with a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. I think what, what's happening in this text from the, looking at the original recipients, what they would have understood, this rod strike on the judge of Israel on the cheek would have been referring to the actual king of Judah. And if you know anything of what's happening at this time, you have good king Josiah, great king, he dies. Then his son Jehoaz takes over, bad king, he's in position for three months. Pharaoh Necho basically takes over, exiles, exiles him over into Egypt. He dies there. After him, Jehoiakim is king. And he pays taxes to Pharaoh and does kind of, he's kind of a puppet king to Pharaoh. And he does this for 11 years. And then Nebuchadnezzar kind of moves in. Egypt doesn't have the power it had before, and, and, and he becomes kind of um, Nebuchadnezzar's kind of puppet king, Jehoiakim does for three years. But then he rebels, Jehoiakim gets taken out as king and, and shipped out to Babylon, and then Jehoiakim's son, Jehoiachin. By the way, great, great names for your kids if you just want to kind of use these. So Jehoiakim's son takes over, Jehoiachin. He's there only three months, bad king as well. Nebuchadnezzar ships him off to Babylon as well. Now, if you understand verse 1, with a rod they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. This is kind of saying, listen, it's not going to go good for you. Now remember, if you're Israel, the kings that you have in the southern kingdom of Judah are from the Davidic line. And you know there are Davidic promises. So if God is faithful to his design and timing. Your king should never not be a king. And if the Davidic kings keep going away, like what's going to happen to us? Well... Man can't thwart God's timing and design, and God's timing and design is usually not the way, that it always, the way we always think it would be. For Israel, for the rod to strike the judge of Israel on the cheek, they would not think this would be good, and they wouldn't understand. But so you look behind the scenes, here's what happens. Jehoiachin gets taken off to Babylon. He's there. Now his uncle, Zedekiah, is placed by Nebuchadnezzar. Now he's the kind of king over and is a puppet king for Babylon at this time. In the end, Zedekiah rebels against Babylon and holds them off. In, in Zedekiah's eighth year of being king, for about three years, he holds them off until eventually Babylon overtakes Jerusalem completely. No more are they a puppet kingdom. 
to Babylon. Judah now is completely overtaken by Babylon. Zedekiah, his sons are murdered right in front of his face. Okay, Now remember, Zedekiah is still from the line of David. Although he's the uncle to Jehoiachin and, and, and he's the brother of Jehoiakim, nonetheless he's Davidic line. Well, right in front of, of, of all of our faces, basically for Israel, Zedekiah's sons get killed right before his eyes. And then Nebuchadnezzar puts out Zedekiah's eyes. Zedekiah is the last king of Israel from a Davidic line. So it seems like God's timing and design are completely lost. When you look in verse 1, I want you to understand, it looks like, but here's what's interesting. With a rod, they will strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Now, let me ask you a question. If you get struck on the cheek, are you going to die? No, you'll survive that. By the way, what a great idea to even think how this could point to the Messiah where our own Savior was smoten on the cheek. But here's what's interesting. If you were to read 2 Kings 25, verse 27 through 30, and all this happens, and, and, and if you're Israel, you're thinking, wait a minute. Zedekiah's dead now. Jehoiakim and Jehoiachin, they're hauled out, off to Babylon. And they're in prison. Like Nothing good can come of this. They can't be around their family. They're not going to live. They're not going to survive. There's going to be no posterity, no kingly line of David. Like God, God said he had a design. There's always going to be a king. And this, there's gonna even, the Messiah is going to come from the line of David. It looks like it's all gone. And then you read at the end of 2 Kings, it says this, In the 37th year of the exile of Jehoiachin, king of Judah. In the 12th month, on the 27th day of the month, Evil Murdoch, which by the way is still an awesome name if you're, if you're a king, Evil Murdoch, king of Babylon, and the year that he began to reign, graciously freed Jehoiachin, king of Judah, from prison. And he spoke kindly to him, gave him a seat above the seats of the kings who were in Babylon. So Jehoiachin put off his prison garments and Every day of his life, he dined regularly at the king's table. For his allowance, a regular allowance was given to him by the king according to his daily needs as long as he lived. By the way, rabbinic sources say that Jehoiachin actually repented in Babylon, and this is why God forgave him and lifted the curse. We don't see that in scripture, but that's just something that's in rabbinic sources. But here's what's so interesting about this. If you go to Matthew 1 and you trace the lineage of Jesus, the kingly line of Jesus, you trace it from Jehoiachin. So God is faithful to his promise in the end. Now, was this according to the design of how an Israelite would have thought it would happen? No. But was it all according to God's design? Yes. And, and here's the deal. We hope in the king that came, and the way our king came was exactly the design and timing of how God wanted it to be. And it's a great model for us to trust God's design and timing even here today. Even in our story, when we see verse 1, when he says he's going to be struck, the judge on Israel, on the cheek. It, basically, the prophet's saying, hey, this is going to be bad, the Davidic king line, but they're not going to be gone. You read Matthew 1, you find that Jehoiachin is in the lineage of Joseph leading up to the Messiah. But even more... What's interesting is this, Mary, you can go over to Luke chapter 3 and you can trace Mary's lineage. What's interesting about Mary's lineage and kind of the earthly lineage of Jesus is that it's traced through David too. Although Mary's lineage is traced through Nathan still of the, of, of the Davidic line and Joseph is, chase, is traced through Solomon still the Davidic line. 
What's interesting is in God's timing and design, though, he brings two people who still are from the Davidic line, keeping the Davidic promises, bringing forth a son of David. Here's the deal. It's all by God's timing and design. So when you know verse 1 and you kind of see what happens, now you understand verse 2 and the bigness of what verse 2. Verse 2 is huge because basically here's what's happening in verse 1. The rod is going to strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. It's going to be bad. What about the Davidic kingdom? But wait a minute, he struck on the cheek. It's not going to be the end. You'll live through, you'll, you'll live through your cheek getting slapped kind of thing. And now he comes in in verse 2 and says, yeah, and that Davidic king is going to come someday. Verse 2, but you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathath, who are little among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth from me one who is a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from of old and from ancient of days. You know, I want you to understand um, God's design and timing to bring about all this is very interesting. You know, and it's not haphazard. So, for instance, it's prophesied in the scriptures in Genesis 49. It says, The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff between his feet. It actually prophesies that the Messiah is going to come from the tribe of Judah. And what tribe do you think Joseph and Mary were from? The tribe of Judah. Now, you may think to yourself, well, that's because you only married enter into tribe. No, actually, take a look around the scriptures. They didn't always marry within a tribe. Even at sometimes, you know the story of Ruth? Sometimes it was a Gentile marrying outside. Now, they tried to discourage that kind of thing, but nonetheless, only by God's design and timing could something like that happen. I mean, the coinc- there's no coincidence that Joseph and Mary, two people from the tribe of Judah completely, but not only that, they, they would come from the line of David, both of them. As much as it looked like the line of David wasn't going to make it, when you look at the siege of Jerusalem, the line of David still continued to make it. But not only that, I mean, the Messiah is prophesied to come from Egypt. And like, wait a minute, how can the Messiah come from Egypt, but also Galilee, be a Nazarene, but then also at the same time come from Bethlehem? How could that work out? Because God's design and timing. So when Jesus was born, if you know the story, Hosea 11, 1 says, prophesies that the Messiah will come out of Egypt. And if you know the story in the New Testament, basically, when, when G- Herod basically tries to kill off all the children two years and younger, and during that time, an angel warns Mary and Joseph, and they take Jesus over to Egypt. And that's why that prophecy gets fulfilled, all by God's timing and design. Jesus was even supposed to come from the descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in which you know anything. I mean, Abraham and, and, I mean, Abraham and Sarah, they were to have their own child, and he was 100 years old, and she was 90. I just don't know about you. I do not see a lot of 100-year-olds having babies, okay? Nor, I mean, could you imagine being 90 years old as a woman and having a baby? Could you imagine that right now? I mean, that, I mean how does that even work? But yet, in God's design and timing, he brought that about. Something that seems almost impossible but it's only by his design. See, even when we look here today at our text in verse 2, this is a timing and design. We put our hope in the king that came. His design and timing is absolutely perfect. So when we get to verse 2, let me read from you Luke 2, 1 through 7, so you understand what's kind of happening. It says, in, in those days there went, out a, there went a decree out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. 
And it was the first generation when Quirinius was the governor of Syria. And all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, about a 90-mile track to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. She gave birth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling clothes, laid him in a manger, because there's no place for them in the end. Even his birth in verse 2 here is by God's design and timing. And it, so, I mean, so get this. You're Joseph and you're Mary. Already you have a lot of ostracizing because, you know, hey, Mary's pregnant and nothing happened. Okay, so you're, you're, let alone, I don't know how you're defending that to everybody else. If you know anything about, their, about what happens, like you got stoned for adultery. But nonetheless, what we find is it's 90 miles from Nazareth to Bethlehem. And she's supposed to... A woman who is at term, about to have a baby, going to make a 90-mile track. Even if Joseph were to come in and go, you know what, Mary? I just, I just love Bethlehem, and I just want our baby to be born in Bethlehem. Let's do it. I'm not sure Mary's going to say, yeah, let's do that. 90 miles sounds awesome to me right now. But there was a ruler who said, no, everybody's got to go back, and we've got to take a census, and we've got to do that. Here's what's interesting. That was all by God's timing and design. How would prophecy be fulfilled? God, in his timing and design, would actually move that. Why would they go 90 miles? God's timing and design. It would make sense any other way. How could Jesus... And they were even amazed. They were even amazed that Jesus was actually from Bethlehem. When you look in Luke... In, I'm sorry, in John chapter 8, when the people are, are discussing who Jesus is, the Jewish people, they know that he's from Galilee, and they're kind of like, wait a minute. It, he, the, the Messiah has to come from Bethlehem, and he's not from Bethlehem. They, they don't understand that actually, yes, he was fulfilling the prophecy, what God laid out, all in God's timing. And just a side note, I think this will help you. Right now, we are not too many days away from you know, voting for our next president, and people are pretty, pretty on edge about that. It's the talk of the town, right? But you know what's interesting? The president that we're going to have after November the 1st is going to be the president that God has decided for us to have. And it will be by his design and timing. And what's interesting, the rulers of this time, Caesar Augustus, God put Caesar and Augustus in his direct timing and design and caused him to make the census that would put Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem at the right time and fulfill prophecy now, from man's perspective, I don't know how that was going to work. I mean, obviously, even, I mean, you would think even Joseph and Mary would understand the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2, and she was getting close to term, and, but it looked like they weren't making their track there just on their own. And don't think it was like, well, maybe they didn't know Micah 5, 2. No, it was a, you can see if in John 8, the general people knew, I'm fairly confident that Joseph and Mary knew that this is where the Messiah was going to come from. But it didn't seem like they were moving that direction, but yet in God's design and timing, he moves them and he does it through a secular ruler. And I just want you to understand something. Even if a secular bad ruler is over you, that does not mean God has forgotten you. That does not mean God is haphazard. That does not mean that God's design and time is completely off. In fact, I will tell you this. It may be a part of God's design and timing regardless. So you can rest easy. Now, I'm not saying don't vote. Vote, and I would say vote morally first and foremost. I can't tell you 
who to vote for from here, but I can if you ask me, okay? And, you know, and by the way, I'm not really, I never like, <laughs> I, I feel like sometimes I'm making, you know, just, you know, the best decision I can out of, out of multiple bad choices and options. But I will tell you this, whoever is our president, God's still in control, and you can rest easy and fine. And which, by the way, just, just so you know, uh, I read yesterday that there's supposed to be like a, a meteor uh, the day after the election. is suppo- I, Now, this one I'm not lying about. I promise you're like, oh, great, here comes Nick fibbing again, right? Setting us up for a story. There's, a, there's actually, I read it yesterday, there's supposed to be like this, this meteorite come through uh, the day after the election. And th- according to what I read, it has a point. Four three percent chance of hitting the Earth. Now, it's said in the thing. You know, all the experts say, you know, it's not going to hit us and all that kind of stuff. Of course, I'm thinking like, man, where's you know, like Bruce Willis and like you know, let's like Armageddon this thing out and like blow it up, right? So I would just tell you this: if you're gonna, if you're upset with whoever becomes president, just rest easy. The world's ending the next day, anyways, right? Just pray that that point four three percent becomes you know forty three percent. You know, so. If it comes, if we see some people celebrating, you probably know who they, you know, didn't want in office anyways. But everything happens by God's design and timing. Even here, in verse 2, it's all God's design and time. I just want you to understand, this was not a simple thing to pull off. Even it looks to me in my soul that Joseph and Mary weren't moving this needle much towards there. But yet God was fulfilling everything. That's how Jesus could come from Nazareth and be from Egypt, but also Bethlehem. And God uses a secular ruler to move this about. Now, here's the thing. You look back in chapter 5, verse 2. And but this is why your hope was in the king that came, and the king to come, and the kingdom to come. Your hope is in this king, because you should be in awe and amazement how God's design and timing worked all this about in a way that is miraculous. And you need to understand this about God's timing and design. It does not work according to our time scale. It never does. You know what's interesting? Micah 5.2. Now, remember, in chapter 5, verse 1, we're getting this kind of like, yeah, the Davidic king line is going to be struck on the cheek, and this is going to be bad, and okay, let's just correct this thing. How quick can we happen? I mean, we got verse 1, we got verse 2. That doesn't seem like very long. But the distance between, you know, when you get chapter 5, verse 2, and you get Jesus actually coming on the scene, guess how many years that is? 700 years. 700 years. You think you've been waiting on God to answer a prayer for a long time. 700 years. So we've got to understand something about God's design and timing. It is not according to our design and timing. It'll come when God decides. God is long-suffering. He is patient. Therefore, sometimes we lose hope in life because we justify this idea that God didn't work as quick as I wanted him to work. But God doesn't work that way. Even in this prophecy of chapter 5, verse 2, even when it's given and the people are understanding, wait a minute, there's a Messiah going to come from Bethlehem? But it wasn't as quick. And by the way, look in here. Does God give a promise of how long this is going to take? No. God does things according to his timetable. Now, you may think to yourself, well, how do I know I can trust God's timetable? Jesus. If, if God would not spare his wrath on his son, according to Romans 8, why would we think that God would not be for us in the end? Why would we not think God wouldn't have the best of intentions for our life? Why would we doubt his timing and design in our life if he 
would, would incarnate, if his son would incarnate and then bear the wrath of God in our place, why would we ever think that God didn't have his, our best intent in his design and timing in our life? So like when, you, when we doubt his timing, when we doubt what's going on, we can actually look back to the king that came and go, I can doubt my doubts. I can doubt my doubts. So not only this, this prophecy had 700 years to be fulfilled, all in God's timing and design. But here's what's interesting. This, this thought came to me. Now, I did as much research as I could when it came to me, but I, I couldn't find everything. You know, someone said to me, an atheist said to me about three weeks ago who I was witnessing to and said, you know, you just believe that Bible and you're just gullible about it. It's just kind of gullibility. And I said, I was like, no, it's actually not gullibility. There's lots of verifiable evidence to what we believe. And you know what's interesting? In Matthew and, and John 8, the people are doubting, you know, wait a minute, this Jesus, he's supposed to come from Bethlehem. And what verifiable evidence is there of that? I'll tell you why. Because there was a census. You could look back at a census. You could look back like, wait a minute, how do we verify that Jesus actually was born in Bethlehem? Because during his time of his birth, where were his parents? His parents were in Bethlehem. And there was a actual census where roles and names were taken that would actually verify that kind of idea. Which to me is just awesome. That even in God's timing and design, he gives verifiable evidence. Like today, I'm, I'm a Christian not because of gullibility, because I see plenty of evidence about the life, death, burial, resurrection of Jesus. So like someone said, like, what, what, like how do you know Jesus rose from the dead? I, you know, I mean, without the scriptures. And I would say, there's, there's many reasons I can tell you I think Jesus rose from the dead, even outside of scripture, although I believe that scripture has told me. The very fact of this, why would a mono, all of Jesus' followers were monotheistic Jews who had everything to lose. Now, if this guy died and did not really raise from the dead and they just made this up, why would you do that? Because you lost your family, your livelihood, everything to follow some dead Messiah? No, they had to be convinced that he had risen from the dead. Only if you were convinced that he had risen from the dead would you actually be empowered and be as bold as a lion to spread this message of the gospel. There's evidence. Even this. Do you know in your New Testament there's 25,000 manuscripts that exist to corroborate together the accuracy and the, the, the felicity of your New Testament. There's evidence. Even Jesus coming and being born in Bethlehem. Now, today, I, I, I was not able to find, can we look at that actual census from that time? I've not been able to find that. I scoured as much as I can. But something in my mind kind of said, you know, we're, we weren't too far removed during that time. I wonder how possible it would have been for the people of that day to know about the census that was taken basically 33 years before. So this is the verifiable evidence of this prophecy. All in God's timing and design. I mean, like, there's a reason why he's in Bethlehem. And it's not just Joseph and Mary decide to go to Bethlehem because that's just what prophecy says. It's verifiable Y'all understand me when I say ver it's verifiable to the fact of it got recorded that Joseph was there from the line of David in the city of Bethlehem. Amazing. Not only this, look in chapter 5, verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem, Ephrathah. Now, interesting about Bethlehem. Bethlehem, it's a small city, an insignificant city. Even by today's standards, what I understand is that Jerusalem just dwarfs Bethlehem. 
But by God's timing and design, this is where he wanted him to be born. This is, uh, the actual name of Bethlehem is house, the bread of life, which we've got Jesus who is the true bread of life. And not only that, this Ephrathath, this name means fruitfulness. And what, what, who else would be the ultimate fruit of everything would be Jesus. By the way, I think this Ephrathath is, is actually distinguishing this southern Bethlehem because there's a northern Bethlehem as well. So it, it is showing what Bethlehem he was to be born in. So this, was the, this Bethlehem, it was the birthplace of King David, the first legitimate king by God's hand of Israel and would be the birthplace of the king of kings. Now, here's what's interesting. This is not the place that a king would typically be born. If you were to be the king, the ruler, you would be born in Jerusalem. You would have been the capital, right? But no, where? Bethlehem. Bethlehem. Humble, small, insignificant Bethlehem. Wrapped in humility. See, our, our design and timing would have had nothing to do with this, but God's design and timing is completely outside of what man decides. So God says it's going to be a humbling kind of birth in Bethlehem, which, by the way, denotes the kind of life that Jesus lived. It was a humble life. It was a serving life. It was a life that put others before himself. And even very much further, this is what God delights in. He delights in weakness because that's when God's strength can be shown even so much more. I love 1 Corinthians 1, but God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing the things that are, so that no human being could boast in the presence of God. We see in verse 2, in Bethlehem, that he's born. Now, here's the deal. If it was us, we wouldn't have picked Bethlehem. But God chose it by his design. He wanted to show forth, not only fulfill the prophecy that he had designed, not only was it coming from the city of David, where David, the first legitimate king, but then where Jesus, the first real king of kings. And it was humble. It was a humble place. By the way, let me take a sidestep here and just talk to you a little bit about humility. God wants humility in all of our relationships. And humility means that you put someone else's needs before your own. Humility means it's not about me. And here's the great thing about humility. You'll never know you're humble. If you think you're humble, then you're probably not humble. And that's something someone can affirm in your life, but it's really not about you. And here's where I notice it the most. It's in marriage relationships. Just an application to the Lord. You know, Jesus is born in Bethlehem, shows his humility, lives a humble life. Life is about serving others. And the way Jesus responded to people, he is God, he's got all the power, he's the, he's the Yahweh God, he's the I am, but yet he treats people as brothers and sisters. You know what's interesting about marriage that is so, I don't think many of us have caught yet. You get married and you have biblical roles and responsibilities. And, and actually, at the end of Micah, before we go into the next Mount of Prophet, we'll take a break. And I want to talk about God, marriage, and family. And some people are going to like what I have to say. Some aren't, but I don't you know, really care. But at this point, you know, roles and responsibilities, God has designed. Husband is to be a servant leader. Wife is to be responsive and submissive to that leadership. That does not mean she's a doormat. They are both co-heirs 
both equal before the Lord in their value, but God has a functional order for the home where he takes the lead, she follows that lead. That does not mean that she doesn't have anything to offer because God designed her to be Adam's helpmeet. That does not mean she's just some subservient assistant. That means that Adam couldn't be all that he could be without Eve's influence on him. But yet, here's what I find. Christians kind of try to walk in this role of responsibility but yet they forget before your role and responsibility, you're actually brother and sister in Christ. And you know what's really frustrating? You'll see a husband and wife talk to each other in ways that they never talk to other people in the body of Christ. I mean, I'm like, like a husband will make demands of his wife that that husband would make of no other sister in the kingdom. Or that wife would talk to her husband in such a degrading way that she would never talk to another brother of Christ. You know what's interesting? I think more marriages could be brought to health if you realized before you start trying to walk in the roles of husband and wife that God's designed, you first are brother and sister in Christ, and you should actually treat each other as brother and sister in Christ. Do you, you get that? I mean, I, I think like sometimes we, we forget that. We think like, well, when he starts being a servant leader, then I'll actually start following that. I'm like, well, wait a minute. What about Romans 12 where it says if someone treats you evil, you treat them good. You overcome evil with good. And that's how you bring conviction to them. Well, when she gets her act together, then I'll get my act together. Well, wait a minute. What, what about bring brother and sister first? Well, here's the deal. You won't act like brother and sister if you're not humble. Because when you're not humble, it's all about you. And when it's all about you, you're the one. This is basically what's holding up the whole reconciliation of a marriage. It's you're putting your foot in the ground and saying, like, I'll change when you change. When humility is like, you know what? It's not really about what you're doing. It's like, how can I serve you? How can I treat you as my sister in Christ? How can I treat you as my brother in Christ? How can I treat you first as we're co-heirs of the kingdom of God together? And I love this. Jesus comes from Bethlehem. It's humble. It's lowly. It's not what everybody else would expect. But it's by God's timing and design. I put my hope in the king that came. His timing and design that God has put is perfect. The place he was born, how long it took, the circumstances, the ability for it to be recorded. None of this would have been the way I would have done it, but yet it's all the way God has wanted it. And even this, look in the rest of verse 2. Oh, you, O Bethlehem, who are too little among the clans of Judah, you're small, you're insignificant. For you shall come forth from me, one who is ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is of old and from ancient days. So here's the impossibility of this prophecy. It was going to happen in Bethlehem, line of David, all this. Seemed hard, takes 700 years. But then also this. <laughs> it basically says that when this ruler comes, he's going to be God. From of old, from ancient days. Now, this is the ESV I'm reading from. I really like how the NASB puts it in the King James Version. The NASB says, His goings forth are from long ago, from days of eternity. King James, whose goings forth have been from old, from everlasting. Now, when you look in the Hebrew for this, in verse 2, you see this word ancient is the Hebrew word olam, which means eternity, everlasting. And this word old, quadim, is in front or before. And so what you, you have basically is he's saying that this ruler that you have, God's design and timing is, is not only going to be this idea of 
700 years later, or not even in, Bethleh- even in Bethlehem and as a humble existence, but even bigger than that, even bigger. This ruler that will come will be God. From old, from ancient of days. He will be God. If you were to look at Colossians chapter, just so you know, Jesus existed before he incarnated, took on flesh among us. He existed before that. And by the way, his existence was not a, he just birthed into existence. He existed eternally. God the Father, God the Son existed eternally. Verse Colossians 1, 16 through 17 says, Jesus is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. For, and, and by the way, sometimes we look at firstborn of creation and go, oh, that's when he was, 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 was born. That's when he came into existence. No, he existed before because in the next verses it says that he existed before. And in fact, when it calls him the firstborn of creation, we're finding that he has the firstborn rights of the firstborn. He does. He holds the title deed to the earth. When you read Revelation, clearly Jesus has the title deed. Verse 16, for by him all things were created in heaven and in earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. When creation was happening, Jesus was creating it. When time was happening, Jesus was there creating it. He is a part of that in the Godhead. And you might say, well, maybe he was just, okay, so he was there at creation, but he wasn't there before creation. He had to come into existence. Well, John 1, 1 through 3 says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was, without him was not anything made that was made. Even Jesus Himself in John 5, 8, 58, He says this, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, you got to understand, if you read your Old Testament, when Jesus says, I am, he's saying, I am the self-existent, eternal God. I am. I am equal with the Father. And that's not an easy thing for him to say in his culture. Even in Isaiah 9, 6, when it prophesies about Jesus coming, it says, For to us a child is born, a son is given, the government will be on his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Jesus is in chapter 5, verse 2, of old from ancient of days. The prophet is saying, and God's design, this, this, this ruler will be eternal. This ruler will be self-existent. This isn't a hard thing if you really look at it. Like, for instance, if you're a deer and you have offspring, what do you have? Deer. If you're a dog and you have offspring, you have a dog. And this is why it's essential that the virgin birth happened, because if you're God and there's a child that comes, it is God. This Jesus is God. And what's interesting about Jesus, Jesus is totally different from, from, like, he is God, but he's also a man. We call it the hypostatic union, God and man coming together, the most wonderful and sometimes the hardest thing to understand. But yet we find this, the prophecy of Micah chapter 5, verse 2 says and from old, from ancient of days, he would be God. So I had someone say to me before, you know, what, can a person be saved if they believe that Jesus was, wasn't God in the beginning but came along at a later point? And I would, I would say, according to this, old from ancient of days, 
You've got, like, Jesus has to be God. He can be nothing less than God. And you can't be God if you didn't exist before time. You didn't exist eternally. You can't be God. By the way, um, by the way, only God could resist sin, and only God could absorb the wrath of God for our sin. And by the way, you also had to be human. You had to be human. If you weren't human, then you wouldn't qualify to actually die for our sins. This is what makes Jesus so interesting. He comes from the kingly line of David, through Joseph, even through Mary, tracing it through Nathan. But then he comes from a human being. He comes from Mary, a human. So he qualifies under humanity. He can make right what Adam made wrong, the first human. But then also he's God in the flesh, so he could actually stand down sin. You know, the wonderful thing about Jesus is, like, you look back, Jesus is described as the second Adam, because the first Adam, Adam, if you just look at him, he had all the food he could eat, all the land he could want, all right, and a naked wife, right? Basically, everything every man's ever wanted in life. And he still disobeyed God. Then you've got Jesus. No food in the wilderness, tempted by Satan, and he stands down sin. How? Because he's God. I don't know about you, but when, if I would have been out in the wilderness like Jesus and Satan would have said, hey, you have the ability to turn this, this, this stone to bread, I would be like, too late. You know, I mean, I would already been munching down. I would have, I would have created some butter you know, out of the dust and just like gone to town. That's because I'm like Adam. I'm not God. I don't have the ability to be perfect and perfectly satisfy the law of God. But Jesus did. The hypostatic union, it had to happen that way. Because Jesus is eternally existent, never created, but came into humanity at the time that God in his design designed. By the way, I had this question from someone about this. They, they've asked me, I've, someone about a month ago asked me this question and said, okay, did, you know, did my, I've lost a baby and, you know, if, that, if I lost that baby, does that baby go back to heaven where they came from? And I was like, so what are you saying? Are you saying that the baby lost was already before? And they said, yeah, yeah. And I said, well, actually, no, it's, it's, it's not like that. And they said, well, Jesus, that's how, I mean, Jesus already existed before he incarnated. Doesn't that mean we existed before, before we came about? I was like, no, it, it doesn't work that way. Jesus is existent, eternal. God, I am. He was there before time, but that's not us. In fact, actually, when you look, if, like for instance, if you look at chapter 2, verse 7, it's kind of different. God's a spirit, but we're, we're not primarily spirit. We're first flesh, then, then spirit as well. So when you look at Genesis 2, 7, even look how the Lord formed Adam. He said, Then the Lord God formed man from the dust from the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living creature. Adam was not existent before. Adam came into existence as a part of his creation. Even if you read Zechariah, we're going to look, we'll be looking at that prophecy. Zechariah chapter 12, verse 1. The oracle of the word of the Lord concerning Israel. Thus declares the Lord, Yahweh, who stretched out the heavens and founded the earth and formed the spirit of man within him. At conception... That's when you actually become a spirit. I don't know. I mean, like, 
Whenever that conception happens, when that DNA physically happens, that's when that spirit is happening. Now, don't tell me, I, I can't tell you how all that process happens, but that's when the spirit comes into being. You didn't exist before, you exist at creation. That's what the scriptures show us, and that's what makes us so different from God. This is why our design and timing is not great all the time, because we came into existence in time. Why is God's design and timing perfect? Because he is completely outside of time. Kind of like this. Um, he is the ancient of days. The scriptures say he's Psalm 90, verse 2, from everlasting to everlasting. Let's kind of take it like this. And by the way, this is a poor example because how can you fathom the unfathomable God? Let's pretend this nice, clear podium. Okay, is everybody looking at this nice, clear podium that has lots of my fingerprints all over it underneath? Okay, if you took a really close look, it does not look great. Even this morning, I've, I've messed up the cleaning that was done on it. Let's pretend that this podium, I'm God, and this podium is time-space. God is outside of time. So, so God is as much in the past, as much in the future, as much in the present, because he is not measured by time. He, he is eternally existent outside of time. He created time. So look at time kind of like this podium, like so you got past, present, future. I can see the whole entire thing. And where I want to, I can interject here in this time in the past, here in the present, here in the future, because none of myself is bound by what's on this podium. I am completely outside of this. I exist uh, not under the control and confines of any of this power. I am the ancient of days. Are you understanding the illustration that I'm saying? So when you try to understand, like, man, how is God eternal? Because he's not bound by time. He's outside of time. He existed before time. And here's the awesome thing. Why can we hope in the Savior that came, God's design and timing? Because God sits outside of time, and he is the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end. He started it all. He can interject himself where he wants. And if he has this great view and can see the whole entire thing because he is outside time, why would me as this little speck, think I could know anything better than him? Why would I think that? Here's the great thing. Even when I persist that my timing and design is better than the Lord's, all I have to do is revisit the cross. When I revisit the cross, I can know that, like, God, your designing and time is perfect. You know exactly what you're doing. And my evidence, my justification is the cross. Now as we finish, do this. Look over at Matthew chapter 2. Matthew chapter 2. You know what's interesting? Once again, the cross. When Jesus, so basically, when Herod's trying to find Jesus and trying to find out, he calls the religious chief priests and scribes in Matthew chapter 2, trying to find out, well, where is this king of kings to be born, okay? And in verse 6, he calls these scribes and high priests, and it's them quoting verse 6. So some people go like, aha, the Bible's incorrect. Because I've read Micah 5.2, and I've read Matthew 2.6, and they don't seem to say the same thing. What happened? Scribal error, I guess. No. If you know the Jewish culture, it's called a targum. A targum is basically when you would give a truth, but sometimes you'd paraphrase that truth and mix it. So for instance, have you ever... Like not quote a verse, a verse verbatim, but kind of got the gist of it, then tried to mix some other verses with it, and just and kind of brought it together. That's that's a targum, okay? That's what you're doing, whether you knew knew it or not. 
So what happens here is very interesting. Verse 6. These are, it's just recording what the chief priests and scribes said. So they quote from Micah 5.2. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. Pretty close to Micah 5.2. But instead of saying he would be from ancient of days, and he says, who will shepherd my people Israel. So they're mixing other concepts of the Messiah to come from Psalms than mixing concepts of the Messiah from Micah 5.2 and creating a targum here. Now, they weren't trying to quote word perfect, but here's what I do like about their quote. Micah chapter 5 verse 2 basically catalogs this Savior that, that, that will come and he will be this ruling king. Well, that's what's coming someday. What's interesting is, unbeknownst to them, but in God's design and time, I love this. They decide to give the Targum kind of form of it, and they go, he will come from Bethlehem. Great, Herod knows it now. And he will be shepherd of my people Israel. Not just a ruler, but a shepherd. And you know what's great about a shepherd? A shepherd gives his life for his sheep. I love that in this passage, whether they, in God's design and timing, and how they do things, even when, when, when Herod is told, they're, they're kind of like, hey, He's coming from Bethlehem, and, 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 and he's going to be a shepherd. And that's exactly what Jesus was. He was a shepherd. In a moment, we're going to take communion. And what's great about communion is we are placing our hope in the Savior that came, who was a shepherd. We get to take communion if you believe that Jesus died in your place for your sins, absorbed the wrath of God in your place, that you should take communion. It's for you and I'll also say this, when you take communion, you're placing your hope in that kingdom to come. Because Jesus said, we're going to be taking this at the marriage supper of the Lamb. We're going to be taking this fourth cup from the Passover. You're going to be taking it with me. And I love when I read this text today, because when I take communion today, reflecting back on our text, everybody, I, I see that I keep placing my hope in that king that came in all of God's design and timing. And regardless of what president comes up, or regardless if 0.43% of that Meteorite becomes 43%. Everything is happening by God's time and design. Everything. When you walk out of here, everything. Everything by his design and time. My prayer is that we could submit to that, rejoice in it, be glad, and you would be justified to glory in it because of the work of the cross. Because this Savior who came in Bethlehem, he'll be king someday, ultimate king, but he also came as that suffering shepherd servant. Would you pray with me? Thank you that we can have a time of preparing our hearts to take communion, to rejoice in the work of the cross. If there's someone here who has never placed their faith in the finished work of the cross, someone has never admitted that Jesus is God, that Jesus bore the wrath of God, that they are sinners deserving of God's justice. Lord, right now, would you let them repent of their sin? Lord, if someone online is listening and they have adopted this false view of Jesus, that he is all love and no holiness, would you let them reject that prosperity gospel, that false gospel, that he is loving, but he's also holy. And they need to repent of their sinfulness and turn to the Messiah and trust in his grace alone. Would you let that happen even online? For that guy that that I passed up yesterday and didn't submit to God's design and timing. 
to submit it to my own? Would you bring another believer to declare to him the gospel work? Would you let me remember that the next time I go according to my design and timing? Let us trust you. Let us lean on you. Let communion remind us. Help us in this. In Jesus' name, amen.